Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you advice and insight that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find information about the Creative Writers Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writers Tool Belt and that it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 126 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt. The summer is over and the colder autumn weather is with us, at least it is in the Northern Hemisphere, and I am back with some plans for some new podcast episodes. And my intention is to bring you some amazing, fascinating guests in interview over the next few months. And I'm going to start in this episode by bringing you the first half of a conversation I had recently with the novel editor, Ellen Brock. Now, some of you may know Ellen from her novel bootcamp event and her series of videos on YouTube. And what I love about Ellen is that she has a real heart for helping people who want to develop their skills in the craft of writing. And as you'll find out, she has developed a wide range of resources that are freely available. Anyone can tap into them and they are a great way to help us all understand the best practices around the craft and to learn how to practically apply all the lessons to our own writing. And in that sense, what Ellen is doing is very similar to the kind of thing that I want to do. And that's one of the many reasons why I was particularly pleased to have her as a guest on my show. So before I get into that episode, I just want to give you a quick heads up on a unique training event that will be available in October. The Indie Novelist Writers Summit is an online course for fiction novelists that will feature 30 international speakers, including the novelist and writing coach C.S. Lakin, the international award-winning and best-selling author James Scott Bell, the wonderful indie writer and guru of all things indie publishing, Joanna Penn, who has been a guest on this podcast, And also yours truly will be in there talking about developing compelling characters for your work. Now that course will be running from the 17th to the 21st of October 2018. And in the next episode of the podcast, which will be out in a few days time, I will be giving you a lot more information on that summit, how you can sign up and what you can expect to get from it. So let's get back to this episode. And as I mentioned just now, it's the first half of a conversation that I had with the professional novel editor, Ellen Brock. I had a great conversation with Ellen. I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Ellen, it's a real pleasure to have you on the Creative Writers Tool Belt. Thank you very much for joining us. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited. So I want to start by asking the question that I ask pretty much everybody that comes on. If you think back to when you were growing up, what were the books and the TV programs and the films that really made an impact on you and were formative for you when you were a kid? So I grew up mostly in the 90s, which was a great time for TV horror. So I watched a lot of TV horror. So Tales from the Crypt, Goosebumps, Eerie Indiana, Are You Afraid of the Dark? And I think that really got me like an early love for horror that's definitely persisted through my life. So I've always been interested in like dark fantasy and horror and things like that and then a really popular movie in my house was labyrinth with david bowie so we watched that a lot and i think i was always really interested in the the girl in the real world who got sucked into this weird sort of like fantasy situation so those were definitely big influences for me for uh, especially for my tastes like in books but I actually read a lot of more typical sort of middle grade like young girl kind of books like one of my favorites was Anne of Green Gables yeah I read that so many times that my copy like disintegrated so I like stapled <laughs> it back together 
But I just, I loved it. Part of it was like she had red hair and freckles and I had red hair and freckles and I was yeah. kind of like wild, weird child. So I really like connected to her a lot. But moving forward, I sort of jumped into adult books really quickly. So I didn't have a lot of reservations about what I read. I sort of read whatever my mom had on the shelf and yeah. she's a huge reader She's still really, she's a bigger reader than I am in terms of like, she just gets through, goes through book after book after wow. book. So I read a lot of things that were on the shelf. So I read like Chuck Palahniuk and Stephen King and Michael Crichton and like kind of advanced books like to begin with. So I started with these like sort of almost like edgier fiction. So yes. yeah. I, I definitely always gravitated towards more edgier horror darker kinds of material so uh, that definitely influences my taste now and my interest as an editor when did you decide that you wanted to be an editor what was what was the process by which you thought yeah that's that's my calling in life if you like yeah I didn't really know that editing was a job for a long time um, well, I always thought that editing was like proofreading or like working on grammar and punctuation and that never yes. interested me. Sure. Um, it was sort of by accident that I got into editing. I was originally going to be a freelance writer and I sort of like happened upon a listing where someone was looking for an editor for their autobiography. And I really had no idea what I was doing. And the guy hiring me had no idea what he was doing. So... <laughs> It was sort yeah. of like a mess of a situation, but it definitely got me interested in editing as a concept. And in my teens, I did a lot of beta reading, but I never made the connection that like beta reading was sort of like editing or developmental editing. I really didn't think that that was the type of thing you could ever get paid to do. Mm. Okay. Um, so it wasn't until I had that job working on an autobiography, but then I ended up stumbling upon a listing for a small press that was looking for an editor. And I ended up getting on, on with them really, really easily. And I really still didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but, you know, I tried really hard. And I had a lot of guidance there. And that definitely helped me a lot with yeah. learning the ropes and learning how to go about like the editing process and things. But yeah, as soon as I started working at the small press, I just really, really fell in love with editing. Mm. And I knew that it was I knew that it was something that really met my needs more than anything else, like creatively and professionally. It was way more in line with what I wanted to do than than um, freelance writing or sure. any other things that I had explored prior to that. OK, now, what do you then think makes a good editor, both in terms of the kind of personality and temperament that you have to have and in terms of the skill set as well? And I, I think you are inferring and you can correct me here in what you said earlier, the distinction between, say, structural editing and developmental editing and line editing, that they're the two very different things, aren't they, from what you've been saying just then? Yeah, they're, yeah, they're very different. And um, with line editing, which I do sometimes do line editing, I do a lot more developmental work. With line editing, there's more, there's more rules. It's not exclusively rules, because you're also looking for clarity um, and flow and things like that. So it's not purely okay. just following grammar rules. Um, but with developmental editing, it's a lot more looking at characterization and structure and things like that. And for that, I think it's almost like a logic puzzle and you have to be able to really break down all the parts of the book and look at how it's working and how maybe it could be working better and how the elements are or are not fitting together appropriately. 
so really being able to break it down, I think, is important. And being able to look at work uh, as a reader, but also look at what the writer was intending to convey to the reader. Because a lot of the time, as an editor, you're trying to bridge that gap between what the writer was trying to say and what the reader is getting from what the writer is writing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that does, yeah. So, yeah, so you have to be able to read it as a reader and also put on top of that what the writer was trying to do and then bridge that gap. So I think that is really important. And unfortunately, I think being able to be the bearer of bad news is kind of important. And I... (laughs) I still find that really difficult. I I know a lot of writers, I think, um, get the impression that editors are really, like, ruthless or that we don't really care about writers' feelings. Yeah. But I do yeah. still worry a lot about how the writer's feeling, and, and it's really hard. You don't – you want to be constructive and honest, and you don't want to downplay or sugarcoat anything. No. If it would be to the detriment of the writer, but uh, but yeah, it's still hard, and I think you have to be you have to be able to be honest, and that can be really really difficult. Mm. Well, that kind of leads into to the, the next thing I was going to ask you. In fact, is because if there's a right way to be an editor, I think there should also be a right way to be a writer in terms of engaging with an editor. So, and, and often perhaps that is about receiving not not necessarily bad news, but direct and honest critique. So as writers, what what should we do to be the model writer to get the best out of working with somebody like you? I think it's hard. It's always hard for anyone to to be criticized. And I try to be aware of that when I work with writers Mm. that there's a lot of emotions that go into that. So part of it, I think, is just taking the time to process the edit or the critique and just give yourself the room to be upset if you if you're upset or to be sad or to be disappointed. And it's normal to feel disappointed if you don't get the kind of feedback that you're hoping for. And It's not that you can't go to your editor with those feelings. You can tell your editor you're disappointed or you're upset, but it can be helpful to process that a little bit before you send an email or before you react (laughs) because the editor wants to help you, but it's hard when the emotions are really high. So I think that it's it's easier to provide assistance or follow up assistance if emotions are a little bit lower. And prior to that, it's sort of like an insurance against getting overly disappointed in what the feedback is, I think it can be really helpful if you uh, develop the ability to look objectively at your work. So for me, I think it's a good sign if a writer comes to me and says something like, you know, I know the emotions aren't hitting and I don't know why, or I know the pacing is wrong, but I'm not sure what it is. Mm. Anything where they have a sense that something isn't right, it lets me know that they're at least a looking at it objectively they're able to look at their work and say i know that this isn't perfect i know this isn't doing what i want it to do it's harder i think when you look at your work and you don't see anything wrong with it and then you get a critique and all of a sudden you're overwhelmed by all these things that you didn't know that you didn't know you were doing wrong or you didn't think you know were going to be the the types of feedback you were going to get it can be Mm. really overwhelming i think I wonder whether following on from that, there's advice that perhaps you can give writers in terms of, let's say somebody's working on a project and they, they want you to help them. They want they want some developmental advice. Should they write the draft and send a first draft to you? Should they redraft it a bit? Should they Should they do more work on a draft to try to tease out in their own minds what's wrong with it? before they come to somebody like you or do they or should is it better just to write something and send it in i think it can really go both ways i you really have to just be kind of aware of the limitations of what can be achieved if you send a first draft Mm. 
the first draft definitely isn't something where I can look at it and give you like, you know, five or 10 points that you're just going to apply and then it's going to be done. A first draft is probably going to be needing mostly a rewrite or significant amounts of rewriting. So as long as you're okay with that as the writer, I think getting assistance with a first draft is totally fine. It may not always make the most financial sense to do that because editing is really time consuming. So it's very expensive. And if you don't have the funds to go through that process two times, three times, four times, you're better off getting it as close to finished as you can on your own. So then you're getting more advanced or higher level feedback and you're not going to end up focusing on things that you could have figured out or that you could have had a beta reader or a critique group figure out for you. So it really depends on what your expectations are, I think. Just then on the back of what you've said, I know that some of my listeners will be thinking, wow, okay, so you're you're touching on the the necessary issue of how much it costs to get a, a piece of work edited. So if we take the services that you provide as an example, if somebody came to you with a hundred thousand word manuscript and they said can you do some some developmental editing work what kind of figure do you think that that might cost yeah so i think for me um my prices are pretty much in line i think with what's typical so for me that would be it would depend on the service it would be somewhere between a thousand and eighteen hundred but i usually try to persuade people into shorter services a lot of the time i can identify 60 70 80 percent of the problems within like ten thousand words so often getting a full assessment isn't necessarily a significant improvement over getting just a basic overview of maybe 10,000 words or 20,000 words. So I do try to dissuade people from getting a full edit if they're not to a point where they're going to necessarily benefit. So I do try to offer a variety of cheaper services and shorter services. Sure. But yeah, anywhere from a thousand to eighteen hundred I would say is fairly typical for a hundred thousand words okay and you're going to pay more for someone with more experience or someone who's been around longer or has sure better credits etc yeah and obviously that's the US dollars you're 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 quoting in there isn't it right yeah okay so let's move on to thinking about some of the problems that writers have and, and you've already alluded to, to some of these I think in our in our conversation but thinking about the way in which somebody structure a writer structures their work, what are the one or two, maybe three, if you want, really big problems that you see time and again? Yeah, I think one of the biggest is the middle. Um, we often call that like the saggy middle, <laughs> um, yes. where there's just not enough happening in the middle of the novel. So there's the setup, the problem is introduced, we get to sort of the main location, the main set of characters, and then sort of nothing happens until the end. There's a frequent issue with characters sort of spinning their wheels once we get towards the middle, and then you just have this long stretch where there's not a lot of progress or momentum. And that can be really tricky to overcome. Sometimes it's because the plot itself is too simple, especially if you're introducing the primary goal or like the main story goal from the beginning. And then you have a very simple linear storyline where the character knows what they want, there's an obstacle, and then you're just trying to make it take as long as possible to get to the climax. It's often easier to structure, a long, especially an adult long novel, if the primary goal isn't introduced at the very, very beginning, because it just it's often very difficult to draw that out into a full novel. So that's one of the more common issues mm. that I see mm. is the plot is a very simple the character wants X, 
And then there just isn't enough material to make that take the entire novel. So you end sure. up with a lot of conversations, a lot of sitting around, eating, and <laughs> things that aren't really moving the plot forward. Yeah, and I think that can be it can be fun to write those kinds of scenes. And I think writers like, uh, especially writers who really like their characters and they have these really distinct personalities, it can be fun to just like have them hang out together. But when you're looking at filling up a full novel, it's, that's yeah. often the first thing that I'm looking for to cut out is anytime people are just sort of hanging around and not accomplishing anything. Okay. Um, another another big one is scene structure. And I'm always big with scene structure with pushing that people learn how to structure scenes because it's probably the biggest it's probably the the biggest improvement you could make in your writing if you're just going to learn one thing. Scene okay. structure is going to save you a ton of pain and agony in the editing process <laughs> because structuring your scenes is going to give you this strong sense of momentum and movement in the plot. And you're not going to end up with scenes like people hanging out and eating and chatting and not really moving the plot forward. So poor scene structure can result in these really, really long, meandering, boring sections that just don't move the plot. And sometimes I'll work on a novel and there will be 10,000 words in a row that can just be fully cut out because it's just not contributing at all. Mm. And scene structure can really, really save you. And so I'm always, I, I have a video series about scene structure and I point almost everybody that I work with to that video series because above all else, I think if you can get the scene structure down, a lot of the other issues are going to fall into place. Obviously, a lot of the things that you're going to be talking to us about in this conversation you won't be able to say every single thing about that subject so i think there'll be a lot of times when people just need to go to your video series uh, on on youtube uh, or via your website and, and, and then really kind of get to grips with the kind of things that you're talking about but just in terms of scene structure are there maybe one or two pointers one or two little kind of tasters that you can give us in terms of the these are the kind of main things that we need to think about when we're trying to get to grips with getting scene structure right? Yeah, I would mainly focus on momentum from scenes, um, focusing on how right. the scene is going to affect the story. Often there's going to be a short-term effect and a long-term effect. So you might have a scene where you're planting some kind of foreshadowing or a clue or something that isn't going to come into play immediately. But it's really, really helpful to have some sort of immediate effect on the plot. And that can be an emotional effect for the character. So the character's emotion changes and that changes how they're going to react in the next scene or how they're going to move forward. It can also be new information or a new conflict, just anything that adds a little bit of fresh freshness and a mm. little bit of movement and momentum to the plot. And that can create a chain reaction that helps that that momentum and that thrust so that you mm. can pull the reader through the story and they maintain that excitement and interest in what's going on. And then, of course, goals are really important. If you have a lot of scenes where the protagonist doesn't really have a goal and they're not really trying to accomplish anything, you're either going to have scenes that aren't contributing to the plot at all, or you could still have scenes that contribute to the plot, but you have a protagonist that comes across as really inactive. So things yes. are happening to them and yes. you create almost a perception that they're just sitting around waiting for the plot to start happening. And that can be really disengaging and it doesn't really make for a very exciting or strong personality to be the lead of your novel. Well, funnily enough, I was watching one of your videos earlier today where you were talking about the, the dangers of having a kind of passive, reactive protagonist. 
Um, and, yeah. and that, that, that can be really, you, know, you don't want the, you don't want the stuff to happen. Stuff shouldn't just happen to the protagonist. They need to initiate things and, and make things happen themselves. Right. Yeah. And even if something is going to happen to them and they're not the most active party, giving them something else that they're trying to do so that when something does happen to them, it is a conflict. It's mm. getting in the way of what they're trying to do still gives that sense that they're in control and they're, yes. they're the one who's driving the plot forward. Yeah. What you're saying as well reminds me of um, one of my early interviews for the podcast was with uh, Jean Cavellos. And she said that the biggest issue she has, particularly with newer writers, is they just don't give their protagonist a goal. And that yeah. it sounds like that's a kind of quite a big deal with some of the work that you're seeing as well. Then. Yeah, that's really common uh, on both the scene level and on just the, the story as a whole level. Like there are... It's kind of interesting. I've sometimes thought it's almost like amazing that you can write a novel where there's no goal, that you can be... It, it really takes a lot of creativity to come up with enough things to happen that you can write 100,000 words without a goal for your characters. <laughs> I think that those people are really, really creative. Um, but yeah, you definitely want your protagonist to be trying to achieve something. It helps the reader to connect with them and engage with them. Otherwise, we're not really sure what are we shooting for? What's the end goal yes. here? What? How yes. are we going to know when we've gotten to the climax? You know, If we don't okay. know what the character's trying to achieve... It just makes things really rough with the pacing yes. and it makes the character not very exciting. And on that subject, do you believe that the protagonist has to actually have one main goal? So even if they've got other bits of stuff that they achieve or want to do, that they should have one overarching goal that kind of is the engine for the whole piece all the way through the, the book? Or, or is it OK for the protagonist to have more than one big goal? Um, more than one big goal is okay with a few caveats the you need to have some sort of motivation that underlies both goals so you can kind of unify them in some way so okay. you're going to want yeah. there to be some kind of emotional connection between multiple goals and there should be a clear external demonstration of when the character has achieved that goal so there needs to be something that the reader can see happening and know this this is the climax. This is what the character was trying to do, if that makes sense. So yes. often, say, if a goal is kind of abstract or changes a bit, um, like maybe the character wants to be popular or something like that, it's very vague, the concept of when is the character popular, when have they achieved this. So you want to give some kind of clear scenario. So maybe they want to be prom queen, and then you know if they achieve that, that's them meeting yes. that goal of wanting to be popular. Yeah. So there's a, there's a so tangible a, evidence of it then, isn't there, I suppose? Right, yeah, tangible evidence. You you can have multiple goals, but it ne there needs to be a clear point that this is, this is success. Sure. If the reader doesn't know what success means in the story, then you're going to really run into trouble with investment. Yeah. The reader is going to lose interest. What this also reminds me of, there's all kinds of things going through my mind, comments, comments that other editors and agents particularly have made to me in the past. So some people have said to me that one of the problems that, or the traps that writers fall into is they end up writing an indulgent scene. They, they spread out a wonderful setting or they have what you've alluded to, characters sitting around talking to each other and that that is a danger sign in a piece of work where if you're writing an indulgent scene that just kind of luxuriates in the setting or just the characters but nothing is happening then that's where there's a problem yeah yeah definitely um a lot of writers i think they're driven to write to begin with because they have this world that they want to express or that yes. they want to spend time in or characters that they want to spend time with 
And I, I do think it can be really difficult sometimes to differentiate between scenes that are really necessary and scenes that you just like because they're important to you for whatever reason. Yes. So it is important to develop that ability to say, is this really serving my story? Do other people see that this is interesting and entertaining or is this just something that I'm getting enjoyment out of writing? Because writing for enjoyment is obviously it's, it's a great thing and you can always cut out scenes later that aren't serving the reader. But I do think it can be it's very important to get to a point where you can make a distinction between the two. Okay. Now I've asked you a bit about what the one or two big problems are with, with structure. And I'd like to move on just to perhaps what the one or two big problems are that you see in terms of the general narrative of the work. So grammatical, maybe or stylistic issues. What, what are the problems that writers have in those sorts of terms with their work? I see a lot of writers over describing emotions and I would mm. say that's one of the bigger ones at least that's one of the bigger ones that I think that maybe your listeners haven't already heard before I think there's a lot of similar advice out there but I I see a lot of over describing of emotions and not a lot of people talking about this as an issue yeah if we're put into situations as people will often react very very similarly on an emotional level for example, if somebody puts a gun to my head and somebody puts a gun to your head, we're both going to be afraid. That's not going to be unique to me or unique to you or to anybody else. So what you're really looking then to do is to figure out what is unique about what your character is experiencing. And that's going to be what your character is thinking about the situation, not the emotion that they're having. So relying more on introspection rather than describing emotions is going to get you a lot farther and making your characters feel distinct and unique as people. Because so say someone holds a gun to your character's head and they think, oh, not this again. That tells us way more about them than saying their heart mm. is pounding or they're scared mm. because that's just that's just the expected reaction. So sure. Moving beyond the expected emotional reaction to describe something that's deeper or more interesting or more special to your character, I think is really important. It sounds as well as if there's a little bit of the good old advice around showing, not telling in there, in that we should perhaps, yeah, as re yeah. as re the readers should be able to infer or deduce what the emotion is from what's going on. They shouldn't have to be told necessarily what somebody's feeling because they should be able to, unless you're doing something really interesting, as you just gave with your example, that people should be able to work it out for themselves. Right. Yeah. So for, for the most part, yeah, I'm talking about showing instead of telling. And um, I think learning how to use introspection can be difficult. And a lot of the time relying on telling is just easier or more intuitive because when you're thinking about the scene and you're writing out what, what's happening, it's easier to just say the character was sad. But yeah. being able to dig into really the specifics of what your character is thinking and the yeah. underlying reason for how they feel can provide a lot more depth and uniqueness to your characters. So I find that that's often why characters come across uh, as flat, even when to the writer they're very dynamic or unique and it's just not coming across on the page. Okay. Um, and sticking with this, this issue of presenting characters, I wondered if you could give us a bit of advice on how we can introduce a range of characters quickly and effectively so that those introductions don't take too long, so the characters are clearly delineated in the reader's mind. How would you advise we go about doing that? 
Generally, the best way is to pick one or two traits that make the character stand out from the other characters, but I sometimes hesitate to give that advice because it can be taken to an extreme and then can become sort of cartoonish. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so having distinct traits doesn't necessarily mean they're dramatic or particularly unusual traits. You might have a character that's just a little bit shyer than the other characters or a little bit more outspoken. Um, Distinct emotions in a particular situation can also be helpful. So if everybody in the scene is sad, but one person is mad or unhappy, that can help to differentiate them. Mm -hmm. I think one of the easiest ways that is often overlooked is having the main character provide some sort of introspection about the other character. If you convey what the main character or the protagonist's opinion is about another character, that can help to solidify them in the reader's mind. It can help to sort of reinforce whatever trait you're trying to convey as their primary or, or predominant trait in the scene. So if the character thinks that you know they hate someone and they're so annoying and they're a complete brat, it, it immediately solidifies in the reader's mind that that character is a brat. And you don't have to put as much effort into trying to find some way to weave it into the scene or to show it. Um, But I I think introducing multiple characters at once is always a little bit tricky. So I generally advise, if if ever possible, not introducing more than maybe three characters at a time. Once you get into four or five characters at a time, especially if you're talking about the first chapter or two, it gets really, really difficult. It's definitely not impossible but it becomes really, really difficult. Okay. It, it occurred to me that when we're, as writers, when we're, when we're thinking about structure and we're beginning to kind of read what writers and editors say about structure, uh, people, we hear things about the three-act structure and we hear things about the hero's journey and, and the kind of theories that people have about structure for story. Do you think there are clear stages in the structure of a story and do they change at all with the genre that we're writing in? Yeah, I like... The four quarter structure for me, I think that it's a lot easier to to apply and to understand. So in that, you're going to have the first plot point, the midpoint, and the second plot point, which are going to be roughly at twenty to twenty five percent, fifty percent, and then seventy five to eighty percent into the story. So the reason that I prefer the four quarters is that I think the three act structure can be misleading. It can give the impression that the story is split into equal thirds. When really Mm. the beginning and the ending are only going to be about 20 to 25% each. So you're talking about the middle of your novel being 50% of your novel. And I think that this is partially why it's fairly common to see novels, uh, unpublished novels with really, really long setups. It's because this impression has been given, I I think, from the three-act structure that 33% of your novel is supposed to be the setup. And Mm. that is going to be really, really, really slow. Yeah, yeah. So I, I prefer the, the to look at it as four quarters. The other reason is the middle does have two distinct parts before and after the midpoint. So before the midpoint, your character is going to be a lot more exploratory, sort of more fish out of water, seeking answers, trying to figure out what's going on. And then in the third quarter, which is the second half of the middle, you're going to have a character who's a lot more capable, a lot more active. They're more on the offensive and less on the defensive. And it, I think it's very helpful to conceptualize that when you're writing because it can help you, especially if you have a lot of scenes that you know you want to include. It can help you to kind of figure out 
which make which section of the middle makes the most sense when you're placing those scenes into the story and how can you make a clear distinction between the character before and after the midpoint with genres it definitely is going to be different in terms of what those plot points are going to look like but it's not it's not going to be so much different it's just going to be different in terms of what's most common so for example in like a rom-com or a buddy comedy the the breakup is all pretty much always going to happen but it isn't that that's not following the same structure it's just different than say like a murder mystery where maybe in the same place where you might have like a breakup in a rom-com you might have a complete uh, breakdown in the clues where it looks like the whole entire um, investigation has failed and they're never going to catch the bad guy so it's going to look different for different genres, but really it's the same. It's just different because the, the stories call for different types of plot points. You you talked there about the four quarters and you mentioned the first and second plot point. I wonder if there was, you, there was a book that you could think of that you could just give, a, as, give to us as an illustration of how that book is split into those four quarters. Maybe one one that's like really popular, one that people will generally know. Is there is there an example that you can think of where you could just give us a just a little detail about how that that quartering up the the story would work? One that I use a lot as an example is uh, Harry Potter, just because it's so popular and everybody yeah, sure. generally knows like the story. So the first plot point in that a lot of people think that it's when he gets his letter to Hogwarts but that is not the first plot point it's too early in the story the first plot point is actually when he gets to the Hogwarts Express and he's getting on the train and he's leaving to go to Hogwarts and the reason for that is that it's the point of no return at that point that he is going to Hogwarts he can't change his mind he can't go back and pretend like his life was the way it used to be. And that's usually what we're looking for with the first plot point is a point where the character can't turn back. They can't pretend like things didn't happen. They're pretty much forced to move forward and to take actions at that point. Okay. So the the second plot point, which is going to be basically the the entry into the fourth quarter, I, I'm trying to think. I, it's been a while since I've read Harry Potter. I believe that it is when they talk to Hagrid and he reveals that he gave Voldemort the information about how to subdue the three-headed dog in order to get past. Yeah. And then that enters into the fourth quarter. And then the entire fourth quarter of Harry Potter is really like the, going through all of the challenges to get to the Sorcerer's Stone. So I think there's the one with the the vials and um, the devil snare and all of those challenges. And that really takes up yeah. the entire fourth quarter of the novel. Sure. Would you tend to think of that first plot point as the inciting incident or is that not helpful? Uh, is that just a kind of clash of different ways of thinking about things? Um, I think some people use the term inciting incident differently. And I think that's part of what makes it confusing. I usually consider the inciting incident to be before the first plot point. So yes. The, getting the letters to Hogwarts would be the inciting incident. And then later on, you're, you're going to have the first plot point. In some stories, the inciting incident and the first plot point are really, really, really close together. Sure. In others, sure. they could be really <clears throat> far apart. You might have a an inciting incident that happens on the first page. And this obviously, the first plot point isn't going to happen for another 20% or 25% yeah. into the story. You talked about the midpoint and you talked about what's happening before just before the midpoint and just after it. So I guess the second and third quarters in that four quarters 
concept that you talked about. Can you just remind yeah. us about that? What is happening just before the midpoint in that second quarter and what, by contrast, is happening in the third quarter? So the midpoint is going to do a couple of things. It's going to, if you're having, if you, especially if you have a very defined character arc, the midpoint is going to, to have the character face some element of their arc. So typically they're going to have a little bit better sense of what they need to do to change as a person. And the prominence of that is going to vary a lot depending on how significant the character arc is and also the age of your audience. You probably aren't going to see that as defined in a lot of children's books Mm. as you would in adult books. Mm. The midpoint is also going to give the, the character a new piece of information. Normally, this is going to be some sort of information that has been acting on the story but the character wasn't aware of it so it's usually some sort of twist it doesn't necessarily need to be a big twist but it's going to be something that's changing in the story so that after the midpoint the character is more able to be proactive so prior to the midpoint you're going to have a lot of exploration gathering information trying to figure out what's going on and the midpoint is going to give enough information that the character can then be proactive in a more dramatic sense. So in mm. that uh, in that sense, they can be on the offensive. They can go after what they're trying to achieve or they can go after the villain in a more active way because they have the information now that allows them to do that. So in the most basic sense, you're looking at in the second quarter, your character is going to be more incapable. And then in the third quarter, they're going to be a lot more capable. So you can conceptualize that as incapable and capable or all of defensive and offensive but you're really just going to see a shift to being more heroic stronger more capable okay so if i think about the the hobbit for example would the midpoint in the hobbit be when bilbo finds the ring when he's he's in he's with Gollum and he finds the ring and i'm, I'm thinking he then achieves a little bit more agency perhaps and is then able to be a little bit more proactive um i think that you're right i it has been i did not i didn't see the movie and it's been so long since i read it that i i can't say for a hundred percent that sounds right though okay we'll, we'll go with <laughs> that's probably right okay <laughs> So that's the end of the first part of my conversation with Ellen. I'll be releasing the second half of that conversation as a new episode in a few days' time. Until then, you can find out more about Ellen and her work at ellenbrockediting.com or by looking up Novel Bootcamp on Facebook. So that's it for now. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.